Hi, welcome to another edition of Pathfinders from RBC Capital Markets, where we'll be exploring what's on the horizon for companies and investors in the biopharma sector. I'm Brian Abrams, Managing Director and Co-Head of Biotechnology Equity Research here at RBC Capital Markets. And in this episode, I'm joined by Andy Schwab, Managing Partner at 5AM Ventures, a leading VC firm focused on creating value in early stage next-gen life science companies. We're going to be discussing 5AM's diversified hands-on investment approach, his perspectives on the VC industry today, and his outlook for 2021. Andy, welcome and thank you again for being here with us on Pathfinders. So maybe just to start, can you give us an overview of your background and journey from finance to industry to venture capital and ultimately founding 5AM? So I was a genetics uh, undergrad uh... Uh, major, uh, you know, back in the early 90s, and got excited about the the sector before anyone really knew what it, knew what it was, uh, and decided to to move to California to uh, to get into the biotech, and was fortunate enough to end up at a great company called Affimax, which uh, that really uh, seeded my my love for biotech and, and entrepreneurship. I uh, actually went to medical school uh, uh, after that, thinking that uh, medicine was the was the path to you know long term success in biotech and and realized that my my heart was really in the entrepreneurship and, and finance side of uh, of biotech. I uh, went to an investment bank uh, called Montgomery Securities, where I worked on some, some great IPOs and, and M and A deals uh, in uh, the sort of mid '90s, and then into venture capital. And really, the um, the background of, of 5 a.m. The name 5 a.m. means early, right? So we get into companies uh, at the earliest stages, and we created the the firm. Uh, to, to be a hands-on early-stage firm uh, back in 2002, and that's what we've been doing for the last 18 years. On that point, h- high level, can you talk a little bit more about what the big-picture mission and investment strategy is uh, for 5AM? We're really classic, old-fashioned venture capitalists, and we find entrepreneurs we want to work with, want to partner with, uh, and find technologies that uh, we're excited about to, to be breakthroughs. Obviously, these are very early stage projects when we get excited about them. And so it's uh, really falling in love with the science and, and falling in love with the, the entrepreneurs as people you want to partner with and, and help build uh, companies over time. Speaking of breakthroughs, what are some of the cutting edge technologies across your portfolio companies and in the field in general that you think are the most exciting? I think the hardest job of a VC is to look at where, uh, you know, where the industry is going to be uh, in uh, in a number of years, gene therapy is the, the classic example, right? The first gene therapy trial was 1989, and and only 20 plus years later have we really seen the the fruits of of gene therapy. We were early investors in a a company called Audentes, and have been in a number of gene therapy uh, companies. And so then, as you as you look out uh, going going forward, obviously cell therapy is in, incredibly interesting, and and uh, everything that's been developed in the CAR T space and and moving that forward, obviously there are read-throughs into uh, lots of other cell therapy technologies, uh, and also into you know, diseases outside of oncology. Uh, so those are those are some key areas that we're we're interested in. Uh, from a target perspective, the, everything you're seeing in the in silico space and the uh, you know the very technical side of identifying new targets. Uh, those are areas where where we're uh, excited as well. 
Can you talk about the importance of AI, machine learning, and digital health? Um, how is that evolving, both in terms of development of new drugs as well as improving patient outcomes in other ways? So from a digital health perspective, uh, we're uh, big uh, supporters of a company called Paratherapeutics, which is a, a leader in the prescription digital therapeutics space. That's a company where uh, we really got excited about the idea of uh, using software uh, in conjunction with pharmaceuticals to improve patient outcomes. The company uh, has the, the first uh, product launched at this point, which is a, a product called Reset O uh, for the treatment of, of addiction. Uh, and it's a, uh, the, the first prescription digital therapeutic. We think that PDTs will be a, a new modality, you know, like gene therapy, like cell therapy, like, you know, antibodies back in the day, uh, and will be really ubiquitous uh, technologies for the treatment of disease going forward. I think on, on AI and NML, uh, there's a lot of investment going in this space, and, and I think we have taken the position that we're interested and, and are uh, paying attention to the space, but I think ultimately it comes down to finding a molecule that will treat disease. And so um, while you know, we're believers in those technologies, ultimately, will they really be game-changing across the board, I think, is, is yet to you know, play out. Therapeutic areas do you view as most ripe for investment and with the most potential for innovation? And conversely, are there any disease areas that you see as particularly challenging or that you avoid? I think it's it really comes back to to what you're seeing in terms of the genetic definition of the of the targets and and really you know the genetic underpinnings of of disease. The low hanging fruit there has been. Uh, in oncology, uh, in precision medicine, and now in, in gene therapy, gene editing, and single gene mutations. We think any disease that has a genetic basis that you can really attack uh, and target, those are going to be the best diseases to go after. And so rather than saying, okay, well, you know, oncology, oncology is obviously a major problem, neuro is obviously a major unmet medical need, we're really looking at uh, genetic basis of disease and, and how to move forward from there. I think that means, unfortunately, some of the more chronic diseases, some of the more lifestyle-driven diseases are, are just harder. They're so multifactorial, and choosing points for innovation uh, intervention is harder. So we've really uh, stayed away from those big chronic diseases just because of the, the difficulty in attacking the disease. You talked earlier about CAR-T, gene therapy, I'm curious if you could expand a little bit more about any other modalities or strategies that are really in the early stages now um, that you believe can radically change the treatment paradigms going forward uh, across multiple disease areas, but perhaps are still uh, under the radar or underappreciated. The one area that, that I'm really excited about is uh, the microbiome. I think that this is one of the new modalities that's going to be really interesting. And, and so there are a lot of new companies now uh, where you're, you know, you're really going to have living engineered microbes in your, in your microbiome that can uh, impact disease. If we really can engineer microbes to live safely, obviously, in your, in your microbiome over time uh, and treat disease, and we think there's a, a huge opportunity there. Shifting gears, um, to what degree do you expect the political landscape to influence innovation and the deployment of next-generation technologies? 
the election uh, and the, the pandemic are, um, you know, two major intertwined factors. And, uh, you know, it's been a really uh, tough eight months for the, the country and the world. Uh, obviously, the, the positive uh, at the, the light at the end of the tunnel seems to be emerging. And I think what you'll see on the, on the backside of that is decades of tailwinds for biotech, I think everyone that's lived through the past eight months will do whatever they can to, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so I think that that uh, leads to uh, incredible investment, hopefully development of, uh, of an industry throughout the world that uh, continue to, to really attack diseases. The U.S. leads in this space, and uh, I, I believe that uh, you know, if we can double down on that and really uh, drive growth of the, of the sector um, that has incredible benefits to the country and to the world. To get back to politics, there can be a bipartisan appreciation of this national treasure uh, and really you know, make it a sector that's supported throughout the United States instead of more coastally at this point. Along those lines, how has globalization played into the innovative environment? Uh, as you alluded to, traditionally, uh, Boston, the Bay Area, San Diego have been the hubs of biotech innovation. Are you starting to see that expand at all to different regions across the U.S. Uh, and to different countries? We're seeing some of it. I, I think that uh, there have been uh, you know, upswings and, and uh, pullbacks. I'm from the Midwest originally. grew up in Cincinnati. And you know, I'd love to see a, a, a bigger effort um, in the Midwest from a biotech perspective. As a firm, 5AM has definitely invested outside of the the coast and some of our best investments have been in uh, Indianapolis and Florida and uh, Toronto and, and um, you know, a number of other non, non-coastal um, places. And so we want to, we want to continue that. I think the pandemic has accelerated some of the movements uh, away from the major, major cities. And so we'll see more of that, but you're seeing more and more, obviously in China, you're seeing more and more uh, in Europe and, uh, and ultimately this, uh, you know, the, the more the more work that's done in the sector across the world, um, the better. How much does the FDA influence your strategy of cutting edge investment? I know there's been a lot of uh, talk about a, an evolving regulatory landscape, uh, especially in certain areas like gene therapy, neurodegeneration, or NASH. To what degree does that dictate the opportunities that are pursued by companies? Yeah, I think the FDA is incredibly important, and uh, I've been incredibly impressed by the leadership over the past uh, you know, decade plus. The FDA has become much more entrepreneurial, uh, much more thoughtful, much more science-driven. Obviously, you've seen with the response to COVID, a, a huge effort from the FDA, which, um, you know, under, under tough circumstances. So, uh, very impressive, but it's, it's really important, and I think that... Uh, you know, a swing back in, in the negative direction would have a huge impact on, on investment. And I remember, you know, earlier in my career when we were going outside the U.S. to develop uh, therapeutics because it was easier to, to get into clinical trials and in other countries. It's incredibly important. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not always sure that um, the folks in Washington understand how important it is. I'm on the, the board of the NBCA. National Venture Capital Association, and some of the work is really just educating, uh, you know, folks in Washington how important the FDA is to investments that get made all the way, you know, throughout the country. 
How has the relationship between venture firms and universities, how has that evolved and to what extent are academic centers uh, the initiators of innovation? I think this is one of the, the areas where you've seen more and more interest from universities in being proactive about spinning out companies, being entrepreneurial, working with uh, the financial community to uh, see their companies graduate. Uh, obviously, scientists have become more entrepreneurial, and you, you, you can name uh, a number who are involved with, you know, ten, you know, dozens of companies at this point. So it's become much more fluid uh, from, uh, from that perspective. And it takes sophistication from the university uh, perspective. It's, it's not as easy as just uh, wanting to uh, take your best researchers or best research and start companies. It, it, it you know, takes some some experience and sophistication, and it takes capital, it takes manpower, uh, but obviously from a venture capital perspective, we're excited about working much more closely with, with universities uh, and, you know, trying to, to get there early and, and uh, see the best ideas and talk to the researchers who we believe are going to be great entrepreneurs. It's such a high-tech and fast-moving space. What do you see as the early marker of a great idea? In other words, how can you tell when a concept is a unique idea that can ultimately lead to a successfully marketed product versus just a fascinating science project that might not materialize into something tangible? This is the hardest part of the job. We see incredible science from some of the best scientists in the world on a daily basis. And, uh, and as you know, science lovers and technophiles at, at heart, uh, we get excited about it. And, and ultimately, this is an investment business, and we have to bet on the ideas that are ultimately going to get to market and help patients. Like maybe a couple of, of ways that we think about it and, and um, try, to, try to hit that problem. One is having a deep and, and broad team, which means um, you know, we've got about a 20-person investment team uh, both in San Francisco and, and Boston. And, and the backgrounds cover everything from ex-pharma executives who have been there, done that, seen it, uh, and have, have seen all the, the pitfalls along the way in terms of uh, you know, which, which drugs ultimately get the market. We also have an intellectual property attorney on, on staff because um, IP is so important to this, um, to this business. So it's really trying to, from a primary diligence perspective, do the work at the outset, obviously. And then I think the, the next step is, is really trying to define early on what is the value-creating, differentiating uh, science experiment that's going to prove that this is going to be meaningful. It's the reason we're in the seed and early-stage business where we can put um, 5 to $10 million to work to find out what the killer app is. That's what we're, we're focused on. Uh, and, and obviously sometimes that, uh, that leads to a failure and, you know, we, we write off the investment and, and move on, but hopefully it's asking the hard questions early so that by the time this becomes a late preclinical, early clinical stage company, we've got a lot of confidence in its, uh, ability to, to obviously help patients and, and get all the way to the, to the market. Beyond technological or scientific innovation, how does a company's team play into things? How important are innovative management teams to your strategy? I think one of the you know, the real um, challenges right now for the 
for the sector is that there are there's you know there are numbers of new companies being created at an accelerated pace, and so ultimately the types of management teams that are coming together uh, are going to be less experienced. They're you know going to have less experience working together, uh, and so it's a it's a you know major uh, issue to to look out for as we. Uh, as we invest in early stage companies, but it also creates opportunities. And I think that the tech sector is probably the, the parallel here where most tech entrepreneurs are first time entrepreneurs. I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the, the biotech sector and that'll, that'll produce some really interesting results. Some good, some bad, but um, it's a sector with uh, a lot of uh, interesting young people and, and it's a space that lots of people want to be in. And so uh, you're going to see some, some really emerging and, and innovative management teams going forward. It's been a record-breaking year for biotech IPOs. How do you see the public market receptivity for innovation today, and where do you see that going in the future? Two key points here. Um, One is you've seen companies that are going public uh, are going much earlier. I think half of the companies that uh, have gone public uh, this year are either preclinical or or early clinical, And, and I think that's really a nod to the to the fact that we are able to see in clinical trials much earlier whether a uh, w- whether a product is going to be successful or not, and that's because of you know, biomarkers. I think that bodes very well for the future, and it's also why obviously public investors are are interested and excited about investing in companies at the at the early stages. I think the other, and you're an expert at this as well, is that you know biotech is really uh, a space that is a growth space uh, as well as a safe haven. So ultimately, it's it's a space where there's incredible opportunities for growth, but it's also you know, diseases that uh, are um, are accelerating. And uh, as a society, we, we need answers to these diseases. This really fueled the IPO boom in the, the last uh, couple of years. I think that's a great way for us to wrap things up. Thanks again, Andy, for sharing your insight and foresight with us today. If you're wondering what else is on the horizon for the biopharma industry, we'll be keeping track right here on Pathfinders. Thank you all for joining us and stay tuned for future episodes. And of course, if there are any areas that we discussed that you'd like to learn more about, don't hesitate to contact us directly for a more in-depth discussion or visit our website for further insight. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com disclosure.